Well, we have the topic this morning of homosexuality, marriage, and the gospel. And it is a somewhat difficult task to, to examine this and weigh this topic up. And I was thinking about, in terms of this topic, homosexuality, marriage, and the gospel, in terms of it as a topic, I wonder if it would have been a difficult task 30 years ago. And, and I, I imagine it would have been. I think it's, it's a difficult topic, no matter what. And yet, I can think that there has been somewhat a shift in our culture, in our society. I think our society and culture has been on a journey, a journey where, uh, as, a, as a culture, perhaps it's become more and more acceptable um, to be uh, given the title gay or lesbian. I can remember when I was at school, it wasn't cool. It wasn't cool if someone uh, was called gay or lesbian, and they would often be ostracised if that was them. Um, fast forward to where we are at today, and it is far more acceptable during the week, I was looking at, at a, uh, a pastor who was examining how did society shift, because it's quite a radical shift from 30 years ago to where we're at today. How did society shift? And he sort of gave it several reasons. Andy, I think there's a slide where we look at some of the reasons that he gave. Maybe there isn't. That's okay. <laughs> decline, first reason that he gave was the decline in gender differences. Um, and, and just looking at how this idea that men and women are different has actually declined, that that view has actually um, changed, shifted in and of itself. Uh, the second reason that he gave was that there is now new approaches in reproduction that don't, don't actually require um, sexual intercourse, that, you, that people, men and women, can reproduce children without actually engaging in sexual intercourse. Uh, the third reason is that uh, there has been an increase in normalisation or a normalisation of extramarital sex, so whether, uh, whether uh, homosexual or heterosexual, that sex outside of marriage is uh, more and more acceptable and normal. There's also been a, a push in the assumption that homosexuals are born. Uh, another reason given was that, that this idea of freedom equals do anything I want. And another reason given is that this idea that marriage is defined simply as two loving adults. Now, you could, in, in and of every single point here, break them all down and consider all of these points in and of themselves in an hour. Uh, and to be honest, I think all of them ought to be uh, weighed up and questioned. How did this happen? How did all these assumptions arise that 30 years ago perhaps these weren't all just assumed, whereas today they are? I think many things have happened, many uh, uh, influences have, have brought these about. Um, whether it's media, whether it's TV shows, uh, many shows today will just push these assumptions as if they're just the normal, as if they are um, the values that we ought, ought to uphold. And uh, I think in terms of depth through this week, I've tried to think as deeply as I can about a lot of these issues and it seems that most of us probably haven't really dug very deep in any of these issues um, and my job this morning isn't necessarily to dig deep into any of these, but rather, um, but I, I do want to encourage you to do that. Um, my job this morning is to, to dig deep into um, how these have perhaps helped uh, bring our society on a journey to where we now see that homosexuality is overwhelmingly acceptable um, and to disagree, according to the media, is to be bigoted, to be prejudiced, um, to discriminate. Um, and so that's kind of the journey, isn't it? And these are the influences that have helped us arrive where society and culture are. Now, that's the society-culture journey. My personal journey. My personal journey, in many ways, I've, I've sort of shared 
growing up in high school what it was like and the views that were thrown around in high school. Uh, <clears throat> my, and then as a Christian man, about seven years ago, my sister came and met with my wife and I and gave me a letter and wanted to, me to read the letter in her presence. And in essence, that letter was explaining that she had herself, was herself a, a lesbian and was in a uh, relationship with another woman. And to be honest, I had suspected this. I'd even asked her outright whether this was the case. Uh, but this was the first time that we had, had begun that conversation. Uh, about a year or so later, uh, Bianca and I were sat down at a cafe in Castle Hill with my mum, and my mum then uh, shared the exact same story for her, that she had now become a lesbian and was in a relationship with another woman. Uh, and so as a Christian man trying to work out how do I, as a, as a man who loves the Lord, uh, relate and interact with, with a lesbian mum and a lesbian sister and their partners. Uh, I've also, in my own personal journey, I guess, interacted with people in this room who have similar uh, stories where they have family members who likewise have, have become gay or lesbian and are trying to work out how to, as a Christian, we relate to homosexuality. Uh, I've also been in this room and prayed with in one, one person in particular who has struggled and wrestled with same-sex attraction. And so I've had to work through and, and ask the big question, well, how do I, as a Christian man, pray for someone who has that struggle? It's an interesting personal journey to walk through. There's the cultural journey and then there's the personal journey that has helped shape and provoke me to ask many big questions. And in many ways, I could this morning just impart to you my wisdom, but that would not be helpful for you because I am fallible. I make many mistakes. Uh, you don't want my wisdom. This morning, my hope, firstly, is really rather that you would actually hear the words of the one who is infallible, the one who, whose words are all uh, eternity lasting, whose words are actually helpful for us. And so my hope this morning is not to teach you what I think, in my opinion, not to teach you the opinions of culture, but to actually land and rest in the Bible for that to be our authority. As a Christian, that's where we go to and say that this is our authority. And so my hope this morning is to walk through three questions. The three questions are, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? The second is, what does the Bible teach about marriage? And lastly, the third question that we'll walk through and, and wrestle with is, what does the Bible teach about bodily desires? These are the three questions that I want us to look at. And again, each time I want us to be grounded in, to be firmly grounded in the Bible, that it would be God's words that guide us on this topic. The second thing that I want to say before we dive into those three big questions is that I'm not going to answer every question that you may have. In this room, there's going to be many uh, questions. Not everyone will have the same questions. There'll be many pastoral implications that you'll want to ask and wrestle with and think about. Uh, and, and I can't promise you that I will address everything. I'll do my best to examine and weigh up within those three questions some of the implications. But there will be many questions that will arise because of that. And so I want to say that right from the, from the start, that if you're waiting for me to address something that you have as a pressing question in your own heart, uh, I might not. If, if that's you, then right from the start, I'd encourage you to come and have a chat to me afterwards or chat to your life group leader or chat to Dave Taylor. Many of us have already uh, thought a lot about this, as I've said and shared in terms of my own personal journey or others within this church. 
This isn't a topic that is new to this church in terms of walking through and working it out. It's the first time as a church we've preached it from the front and examined it from the front. But I would encourage you to come and talk to me. I can't, again, I can't promise you that I have the answers that you may want to hear. I can't promise you that I have all the answers. But I've thought about it and I'd be happy to, to talk to you and share my, my thoughts on what I think the Bible says on certain practical implications. Another guy that's thought deeply about that is Brendan Willis and I'd encourage you to have a chat to him about that too. Right, well, how about we pray and ask for God's help as we do this, as we embark on this difficult task. Holy Spirit, may you grant us illumination. Lord Almighty, would you allow our eyes to be opened to your word that we would see and hear your words as the truth, as the guide in a society where there is many voices. May your voice be loudest in our heart, in our ears, in our eyes. Would you give me grace this morning? Would you allow me to be helpful and clear on this uh, misty and foggy topic? In Jesus' precious name, amen. So firstly, the first question that I want us to look at is what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And when it comes to the Bible and what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, I guess there are many passages that we could go to. We could go to Genesis or we could go to Leviticus where there are certain laws which in in many ways uh, are seen to condemn uh, homosexuality as a sin, that a man would lie with a man or or a woman would lie with a woman would be condemned as sin. Or there are narratives in Judges that we could go to, where we see where uh, men are practicing homosexuality uh, and, the, and the, the narrative and the tone of the, the story is in many ways negative and, and condemning of the practice. We could look at Jesus' words. Jesus never used the word homosexuality, gay or lesbian. However, Jesus did, as he addressed a Jewish audience, a primarily Jewish audience, people who would have in and of themselves accepted the laws that I just said of Genesis and Leviticus, these men and women that Jesus addressed, Jesus did use the words pornonia, which in using that word, in some ways, he is uh, addressing any sex outside of the marriage union of a man and a woman and addressing it and saying that this is not right and that if you can't have sex with a man and a woman, then you should be celibate. That is, that you choose not to have sex at all. Jesus used the word pornonia. We could look at that. Or we could look at some of the lists of, of many sins that, that, are, that are Paul looks at and weighs up, where among them, homosexuality is, is listed among many sins. However, I think what is most helpful, what is most helpful for us this morning as we examine what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, is for us to have a look at the book of Romans. Before we go there, Romans in itself is a book that really is a story, a message of salvation. Now, for a message of salvation... You kind of need a message. You need two parts, right? You need the part that is basically saying that there's this section that says uh, you're in a bad situation. A message of salvation, a story of salvation, always needs to show how someone has ended up in trouble and therefore needs a saviour. And then the second part would be how the saviour then rescues the person in trouble. Where we're going to be looking at is looking at not individuals but humanity as a whole. And looking at how humanity as a whole is in, this, is in trouble, is in a situation where they need a saviour. Humanity as a whole. 
And so I want to be clear about that up front, that what we're looking at in Romans 1 is not a specific let's look at, at how homosexuals are in trouble. But Romans 1 is very clear in its addressing of humanity as a whole. We need to remember that, and I need to say that right up front. And that's partly why I think it's so helpful to go to Romans 1, that all of us see ourselves in Romans 1 first. So let's turn to Romans 1. Romans 1, and we're going to start from verse 18. And we're going to read a chunk of Scripture. We're going to read all the way to verse 32. Romans 1, verse 18 through to 32. I'm not promising to unpack it all, but we will try and get sort of a, an overview of this section of Scripture. Romans 1, starting from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God, but they they became futile in their things. Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with the women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteous, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans 1, 18 to 32. What a, a provoking and challenging part of Scripture. I want to again remind you that we are in this section of story of salvation and this is in essence painting a picture of the, the trouble of all of humanity. Of all of humanity. That all of humanity is in this situa- situation where they need a saviour. How does he do this? Well, in essence what we see here is Paul is teaching uh, from verse 18 through to 20 and 21, his clear teaching is that God is the good and awesome creator. If we can have this, the first slide, Yandy, the first slide that shows that God's created order is that God is the good creator. And God as creator made humanity, made all things. God is the good and purposeful creator, gave mankind good things to enjoy with a purpose. 
The purpose being that in enjoying these things, humans, you and me, would then love him. It's kind of like uh, if I were an artist and there was a blank canvas and I painted something amazing. If you were to come along and look at my creation, that you would look at what I've painted, that you would then admire my work and think that I've done well. Or it might be like if you're an architect, that you would design a house and someone then might look at the, the house that you have designed and look at what your design is and appreciate you and your abilities and your, your uh, attributes even, how good you are. God gives good gifts to his creation for the purpose that he might be loved and enjoyed. Food, for example, that you could have a meal and enjoy a wonderful, delicious, I don't know, I was going to say McDonald's, but not really, right? A good meal, right? <laughs> and you enjoy a lovely, delicious coffee made from, from uh, maybe Chris Page up the back. And, and you enjoy that coffee and you give glory to God for giving you such wonderful gifts like coffee. The purpose and the intention of the gift is that the giver would be exalted. The purpose is not that the gift becomes the end in itself. It's a means to something. It has a purpose and intention for something. The gift is as a design to bring glory to the designer. That's the cosmic order. That's how things were created in that order. That that would be the purpose and intention of things. We see in Romans 1, however, that all of us, all of humanity, exchanges, we do this cosmic treason when we say to God, get off the throne. Get off the throne. You are not the boss. Get off the throne. And we shift God off the throne, in essence, pushing him right down to the bottom as if he doesn't even matter. His wisdom, whatever. Which, have you ever thought about that? I mean, I've never got 100% in a test. And yet I've said to God, the wise one, I don't want your wisdom. All of humanity says to God, go away. We don't want you, but we want your stuff. I don't care about the architect, but I want to appreciate the building. I don't care about the artist, I just want the painting. I don't care about God, I just want food. But here's what happens. When we take the stuff, which was actually had a purpose and a design, had a reason... We settle for something so much less and we use it in the way that it was never intended or designed to be used. Because food has a purpose to bring glory to God. Sex has a purpose, ultimately, to bring glory to God, that he would be appreciated, enjoyed, worshipped. Coffee has a purpose that God would be exalted when we enjoy good coffee. All creation had a purpose and intention and yet we've shifted. And so we see this repeated again and again and again in Romans 1. So if you have a look with me at Romans 1, we've got a slide that will kind of help make it clear. Verse 23, we see humanity say, get stuffed, God. We don't want you. We see verse 24, God gives them over therefore. And then 24, we see the expression of that sin. All right? So 23 is in essence the sin. We don't want you, God. And then it it shows itself, it shapes itself and expresses itself in 24. We see again the pattern in 25. Go away, God. Get off the throne. I want to put other things on the the throne. I don't want you. I'm not going to give my love to you. I'm going to love, first and foremost, stuff. Or me, but not you. That's the sin. That's humanity's problem. 
that we said to God, go away. And we see that then express itself in verse 26 and 27. Dishonorable passions, homosexual acts. We see the pattern again, verse 28, where we, we read again, humanity has said to God, we don't want you, God. We don't want you, God. That's the sin. That's the core problem. We don't want you, the Creator, telling us how to live. We don't want you telling us what, we're, what the point and the purpose and design of these things are. Go away. We just want the stuff. We don't want it to be a means to the end. We want it just to be the end in itself. Go away. Verse 28 is the sin. And then again in, in verse 28 and then through to 31, we see it expressed in sinful actions, many, many sinful actions. Whether it's malice, whether it's anger, even disobedient to children. Uh, sorry, disobedient to parents is in there. <laughs> I'm sure disobedient children should be in there. Nah. The, the point is that at the core, at the core of humanity's problem is the rebellion and rejection of God. The core issue of Romans 1 is that you and I, humanity, has said to the Creator in His created order, go away. The core issue, the core problem is we said to the Creator, thanks very much, but we'd rather treason. We want to betray the rightful authority. We don't want to love Him. Go away and we want to love His stuff. We want to put that on the throne. That's what we want to put in our first place of love. That's the core problem. Romans 1 is not trying to lift up homosexuality as if that is the sin. Rather, what Romans 1 is trying to highlight is that humanity has sinned. Humanity has said to an awesome holy God, the one who is the rightful ruler, get stuffed, go away. I want to love the stuff, but not you. I was thinking about it in trying to... Uh, understand or relate the bible often talks about this action in terms of committing adultery that is where perhaps a husband who is the legitimate one worthy of a wife's love the husband worthy of the wife's love where there is this relationship and legitimately the wife ought to love the husband but instead of giving the husband the love the wife goes and gives the love to an illegitimate lover, to someone else. And in essence, Romans 1 is saying that that is what all of humanity has done, committed adultery or committed treason, said, no, I'm not giving my love to you, I will give my love to the stuff. I'll give my love to creation and not the creator. And we see that expressed in many different ways. One of the ways is homosexual sex. Same as uh, promiscuous heterosexual sex, sex outside of, outside of marriage for a heterosexual. That in itself is, a, is a, 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 an act of sin and rebellion and cosmic treason as well. Romans 1 is not trying to say that this is the, the worst of all sins. It is rather trying to say that you and I are all sinners and we all have a horrible problem and it expresses itself in many different ways. Homosexuality is one of those ways but so is heterosexual sex outside of marriage. So is slander. Slow, so is gossip. So is uh, disobeying your parents is in amongst them. All these are expressions of the, the core problem. As I wrestled with this this week, I was just thinking about it in terms of my own personal journey as well and perhaps 
this in itself, Romans 1, is a challenge to me that for me, as I have thought about this, have I at times thought perhaps I have built up uh, being gay and lesbian as a sin worse than someone uh, having regular uh, sex outside of marriage? Have you thought about that? If I were to say, okay, that if there is two people who want to sit down and have a chat to you, um, and one is, is a, a man who is regularly uh, practising um, gay sex, and another is a man who is regularly having sex outside of marriage, heterosexual sex. Uh, would you kind of have a, a view in your heart that one might be worse than the other? Because the Bible doesn't view it like that. And for me, that to be, if I'm honest, I need to be convicted and repent of that, that perhaps in my own heart, I at times have viewed this as, as perhaps something harder or worse in God's eyes. But the Bible is clear here that the, at the core issue is the sin of saying no to God and that we all have done that. And that in and of itself ought to provoke us all and challenge us all. That in and of itself ought to help us all realise that the Bible says that, that in the same way that we've done this, some of us will express it in that way and others will express it in lying and others will express it in uh, slander. But the core issue is saying, get off the throne, God. I just want your stuff. I don't want to give my love to you. I want to give it to something else. Having said that, Romans 1 does, however give a headline example of homosexuality in, in verse, uh, what is it, 26 and 27. Why does it do that? Which is a good question to ask. Why, why, does, it do, why does Paul then use, if it is just simply an expression, why is it the example that is given in Romans 1 of an expression of the rebellion against God? Why? I think to, to understand that, we want to understand what the Bible teaches about marriage. To understand that, we want to understand what the Bible teaches about marriage. So I will come back to address that. But first, I want to look at... This is our second question, if you like. What the Bible teaches about marriage. So, what does the Bible teach about marriage? Well, the Bible teaches... I'm going to basically land in Ephesians 5. But before I get there, I'm going to look a little bit at Genesis 1. I'm going to go to Genesis 1, 27... And 28. God the Creator, which in many ways is alluded to as Romans 1 talks about creation. Well, here let's go back to the account of creation. And when man and woman were first created, they were given their design and their purpose and their reason. And in verse 27 we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And I'll keep reading verse 28. And God blessed them and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every, heart, every living thing that moves on the earth. Man and woman is made in the image of God. There's this, there's this sense that man and woman are needed in, in, in many ways in and of themselves. They are united in expressing the image of God. Individually, they, they express the image of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yet there's something unique and, and something being said here that together they are made in the image of God. There's this unity here. This 
first marriage, if you like, it's expressed later on in Genesis 2, this first marriage of man and woman, we see that God has presented before Adam uh, other options perhaps to be a companion and no other is a suitable companion, a suitable helper. As, as much as we say man's best friend is a dog, it's not. And according to the Bible, man's best friend, man's best assistant, man's best helper, uh, the one who would be his best companion is a woman. Not Steve, but Eve. Okay? According to God's good intention for marriage, right from the word go, right from when he created and breathed all things into being, it was Adam and Eve. And we see this affirmed later on by Paul and Jesus that this is the created order for marriage. And the purpose of marriage we have uh, expanded somewhat here. The purpose being that marriage would be ultimately to be fruitful, that is to be pro- uh, for procreation, to have children, to, to uh, raise and rear children within that unity of a man and a woman, married, committed, companions. Also, it is uh, further than that, that, that together there's more to it. And that's where we can see it actually explained further in Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 5 makes the mystery known of the point and the purpose of marriage. Ephesians 5. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, and I'm going to read just from verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This unity here, this unity of one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This this uh, further explanation is, is showing us that, in essence, the point and the purpose of marriage... Remember we were saying that everything has a design, an intention, and a purpose. That God, the Creator, the one who created things, therefore, has the right to give them their creation. If I take wood and I shape that wood and give it its, its intention, its creation to be a desk, I, the Creator, have given it its purpose, its intention. God, the Creator of marriage, created it with a, a purpose, an intention... His purpose and intention, as we've seen, is for procreation, to have children, to rear and raise children. It is for unity. Is that as a man and a woman come, that, that, that unity in and of itself is, is expressed in something of the image of God. And further to that, it is in the way that the husband and the, the wife relate, it actually says something so much more as well. It says something about the love of Christ and the church, that in some way, as a mystery as it is, that the way a husband and a wife relate and love each other, it might exhibit and display something so much more. That marriage exists for the intention and the purpose of something so much more than just two adults who love each other. But its actual purpose is that it might display and say something about how great God is. That marriage exists according to the the one who designed and intended marriage. Its intention and purpose was for something so much more than just two friends who love each other and lie with each other. 
but that they actually might have a, a task so much bigger, so much greater even. And that task be that, that ultimately it would lead to people seeing God in the way they relate and love each other. And according to the Bible, that is Adam and Eve, that is a man and a woman as the design intention given to us by the designer. Now, Romans 1 says that we've rejected the designer. We've said no to him. Thanks for the gift of sex. We don't want to use it as you intended. We just want sex, not your way. And as such, as we said before, the expression of saying no to God can therefore show itself in men lying with men or women lying with women. But that is not the intention of sex and does not then lead to God's glory as it was intended to. The intention of sex was within marriage, a man and a woman for unity and unifying of them. Uh, the intention of sex was, was, was again in the sense that it might uh, lead to procreation, that they might have children, rear and raise them. That, that the intention of sex is that, again, in this partnership, this, this relationship of a man and a woman, this relationship of marriage of a man and a woman might exhibit and display something of the nature of God, how glorious God is, that he would be praised forever, amen. It's, it's, a, it's a definition that is so much greater and bigger than just two loving adults. And so, as we wrestle with this in societies, we wrestle with what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, that it is, it's an expression of saying no to God like many other expressions, which is sin. Like the sin that is in my heart, it's sin. And, and, and in regards to marriage, that marriage, according to God, the designer, the creator, said that marriage ought to be man and woman. As we wrestle with this and, and societies push that marriage would be redefined, we have to ask the question, is marriage simply a title? Is marriage simply just a word? Is marriage simply just a word? Because if it's just a word, it doesn't matter. If marriage is defined simply as two loving adults, it doesn't matter because it's just a word. Let me give an example or a picture that might help you understand where perhaps a word becomes just a word. Uh, let's say you come over to my house or, and you are hanging out with um, my wife and our kids and you start to feel discriminated against. Uh, you start to feel like it's not fair because my kids are calling Bianca mum but not you. And you think that's not fair. You feel discriminated against. And you want to be called mum. You want those, those kids to call you mum. And, and in that situation, you have to ask, well, what is the word mother? Is mother simply just a word? And I think many of us would say, no, it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than just a word that can be bantered around and applied to anyone. No, you have to actually qualify do we discriminate and, and, and say that only some people have the right to become a mum? No, you know what? The Bible says that all have the right to become a mum, but you have to qualify and go about it the way that the Bible says to qualify. Mum is more than just a word, more than just a title. The one who gives us all things, the one who defines all things, who, who when my view, my, my view on things is skewed and, and uh, phase, uh, hazy and foggy, he gives us the definition of marriage and is so much more than what society says it is. Society is trying to water it down and say that's all it is. It's just two loving adults. But no, as we've seen, marriage is in, by the, the creator's definition so much more. It is so much more. Its intention, its purpose is for the glory of God. So much more than just two loving adults 
it has a higher calling, if you like. And so I don't want to just water, water down the term. Now, if society goes that way, we need to ponder and consider, we as Christians, people who uphold God's word, we do have a voice in society and you are able to speak. But if society goes that way, that doesn't mean that I then affirm and agree and say, yes, that is what marriage is. I will hold true to what I believe marriage is. That does not mean that I then engage in arguments with everyone about it. It just means that I, in my mind, in my eyes, that my definition for marriage comes from God. That's what a marriage is. That's where God lands on what marriage is. And so therefore, that is my definition. That is where I'll submit. What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? What does the Bible teach about marriage? Homosexuality is an expression of what all of us have at the core, that we have all rejected God. One of many expressions. But it is an expression. It is a sin. What does the Bible teach about marriage? It is that marriage is for a man and a woman in that context, that a man and a woman might be unified, that a man and a woman might procreate, that rear and raise children, that a man and woman in that unity might somehow display something of the nature of God and the love of Christ for the church, some task that is so much bigger than just two people being good friends who sleep together. That's what the Bible teaches about marriage and homosexuality. I think the other, the other question I wanted to maybe wrestle with is that we hear in society is, but what if... But they're not really hurting anyone, so, so why does it matter? They're not hurting anyone. Does it really matter? Because they're not hurting anyone. I hear that. I hear that in, from my family, I hear that from friends. Does it really matter? They're not hurting anyone. And I think as we've read in Romans, that the, the idea of what is right and wrong doesn't come from whether we hurt people. If sin in the Bible was just don't hurt people, then the most holy person would be someone who is the most isolated person. But the Bible doesn't teach that sin is about how we relate to people. Sin is what we do with the Creator and how we relate on the vertical level. So in that regards, what is right and wrong finds its reference to what is right in the one who designed everything, to the one who created everything. I want his take on how to live in this world. I want his take and what is ever contrary to what he says is wrong. Whether it hurts or not, but it hurts him. It is wrong to him. It has pushed him off the throne. The last question that I want to look at is that what does the Bible teach then about bodily desires? What does the Bible teach about bodily desires? I think uh, I'll read a quote from a, a pastor called Ray Galea on the topic. It should be up there. A current area of debate is whether homosexuals are born that way and gene-driven to act as they do or, what, or made... Sorry. A current area of debate is whether homosexuals are born that way and gene-driven to act as they do or made that way either through bad relationships or abuse in early years. The issue is that if the problem is genetic, then the homosexual act cannot be held responsible for the act. But we are all born with an inbuilt disposition to sin. I am born with a sinful nature that encourages me to lust for women other than my wife. Some are born with a sinful nature that encourages them to lust for the same sex. None of us is given permission to turn that temptation into sin. 
the distinctive element of repentance is to recognize as sin as sin and to engage in the lifelong battle to say no. Alcoholism may have a genetic basis, but that does not mean the alcoholic cannot say no. The core problem with homosexuality is the same as that for greed and disobeying one's parents. The nature of our disposition may differ from person to person, but will never stop the person being exempted from responsibility for the control of the disposition. It might be helpful to think of it like this. <clears throat> if we think of a, a cause and an influence and a sin. So if we have a look at uh, what does the Bible teach about bodily desires? Cause, influence, sin. Now many, um, many in the media would like to have us believe that the cause... The cause is genetics or biology and therefore its cause, it it determines behaviour. However, in my week of of trying to uh, do research and examine and look at these things and read as much as I could, none of the research, there was research that was looking and weighing up identical twins and where one uh, identical twin uh, has become gay, uh, has the other identical twin then also become gay. And there was a high proportion. At times there was, I think, at high, as high as 50% in one study. Uh, you can examine and weigh up the legitimacy of the way this study went about as well. But, but even if it's completely fine, 50%, that's quite high. Uh, but even in that, you'd ask if it's genetic, if it causes and therefore determines, why is it only 50%? And in the same study, they found adopted brothers was as high as 11% within the same family. So genetics wasn't, it wasn't even relevant for them, and yet in the same families, 11%, as high as 11% of adopted brothers also practiced homosexuality. To be honest, the conclusions that the researcher came to was that genes played a part. But to be honest, as, as you looked at it, it seemed to be an argument far more on how peers and influences can lead people to become homosexual or practice homosexuality. Is it really a cause? Because if it's a cause, it would have to be 100%. There are other studies that looked at uh, the brain cells and, and um, did the brain cell tissue uh, and activity influence. And, and so there were studies that were done on cadavers, on people, homosexual men who had, who had actually passed away. And again, in the research, uh, it, there certainly seemed to be a, a difference in the brain cells of a homosexual man to the brain cells of a heterosexual man. But again, the questions are, are, are there, so many questions about the research. And again, I know that much of the research is very much in its infancy. But the question arises, was, was that because of their activities or was it causing them to be that way? And the, the, the conclusions can't really be made. It's not determinative, exact, if you like. In many ways, it kind of seems to be more relevant or more um, uh, landing in, in saying in all the research and all the study that, that, was, that I saw and, and weighed up and looked at is that the bulk of it seems to say that not necessarily uh, causes, biology doesn't necessarily determine, but rather it does seem to maybe and possibly play a part. If it is there, it probably has an influence such as one who perhaps has a, a history of alcoholism in their family, that that disposition in their family might then play a part as an influence. Does that mean that that person cannot, has no choice, but to then also become an alcoholic themselves? 
Well, I would say no. It can be an influence, but not a cause. Instead, the Bible actually says that we are all sinners and that the problem, as we saw in Romans 1, is not necessarily that there's a genetic or or biological problem, uh, uh, situation maybe, I should say, but rather that there would be a problem of my heart that is rebellious and against God, a problem of, of my heart that says no to God and yes to his stuff, a problem of my heart that says no to God's intentions for how to use the stuff, I'll work it out myself, thank you very much. The problem is in my heart. And so if you come with me to Ephesians, Ephesians 2 seems to paint this picture really clearly for us. Ephesians 2 shows that the cause, the cause of any, sex, uh, any sinful expression or orientation, any sin, the cause, according to Ephesians 2, would be found within your heart. All of us. Ephesians 2, I'm going to read from verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is to say that, that in many ways in our rejecting rebellion and saying no to God, uh, we, we by nature then... Uh, prefer, have said, we don't prefer you, God, we prefer your stuff. We don't prefer or desire you, we prefer and desire your stuff. We, prefer, we don't prefer your intentions, your design to use the stuff. We prefer and desire our design intentions to use and how to use your stuff. Our nature then, we become to have a preference to desire not God, but his stuff. By nature, you and I, all of us, it is not, again, raising up homosexuality as if that is the, the, the one that wrestles with this. No, 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 all of us are born sinners. All of us are born sinners. As the quote from Ray Galea said, he, as a man, is born with a, with a desire to sleep with women who are not his wife. Should he give in to those, those desires or should he submit to the good creator's intention and designs? Submit his desires to God. Well, the good news is in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By Christ you have been saved. The wonderful, wonderful news for us, all of us, Homosexual, heterosexual, liar or truth teller, the great news for all of us, all of us who are born sinners, is that we have a saviour. The great news for all of us is that whilst we've taken God's stuff and we don't use it as it was intended to be used for his glory, God, who is rich in mercy, as we sung about at the start of church this morning God sent his son who clothed himself in flesh that Jesus Christ would walk among us that Jesus Christ would take our place and the judgment of of treason that we deserve to be uh, receiving the wrath of God on us for committing cosmic treason was transferred 
We the ones who exchanged God, and yet God, rich in mercy, exchanged places with us that He, in His Son Jesus, would receive upon Himself what you and I deserve. And in this, in this Christ dying for you and your, your sin, for me and my sin, in my rebellion, He makes a way that you and I might be redeemed. We might be renewed from our desires, that we might have a, an even greater desire that we might desire Him, a surpassing desire, that we would not simply desire creation, but now be free and made new to and alive to desire the Creator, that we would not settle for desires of things that are, whilst good, so much less, we would now have the desires for the greatest and so much more, that He now would guide us to enjoy and see how we ought to live in this world, the best ways he intended us to live in this world, whether homosexual or heterosexual. What a glorious saviour we have. In essence, what he does is he realigns us. He realigns us that the first love would be him, that the first love would be God back on the throne, that cosmic order would be made possible again through Christ that we would be realigned and have the first love. And when we have the first love, all second loves flourish in their right place. When we have the first love, all second loves flourish as they function in the way they are intended and designed to be. In that place, we will be most satisfied then. We will have the greatest joy then. For our desire and our satisfaction is then found in the greatest No longer am I majoring in the momentary. No longer am I majoring in the momentary, things that pass. But my major is in the momentous. No longer is my satisfaction in creation, but my satisfaction would be in the greatest, in the creator. As John Piper has put it, we will be most satisfied when God is most glorified. When we live as we were intended to live. Oh, that we would live understanding and seeing the surpassing worth of God and live with that truth in all of our lives, that he would be your pearl, your treasure. When you see that he is great, he is not just the greatest, but he is your greatest saviour for all of us, homosexual, heterosexual, slanderer, gossip, disobedient to your parents, Malice, murderer, you have a great saviour, one who went to the cross for you, one who is of surpassing worth to any desire in this world that you would desire him and you can and is made possible, made a way by him and in him of himself that he is the greatest saviour. What a saviour we have, church. I want to end having considered these questions, having considered what does the Bible teach about homosexuality, Having considered what does the Bible teach about marriage? Having considered what does the Bible teach about bodily desires? That ultimately we need to submit and desire Him above all else. I want to end by just perhaps considering what it means for us, Sovereign Grace Church. What does it mean for us as we look at the implications of a topic like this? First, I want to say a word to those who are within our church who wrestle and struggle with same-sex attraction. If that's you... I would encourage you to acknowledge the presence of that struggle. 
not necessarily to everyone, but I would encourage you to, to those who you trust, those who you, uh, you know care for you, I would encourage you to share and acknowledge that struggle and that temptation for you. I would encourage you to share that with them, that you want to honour God in this area. Like a heterosexual man who struggles with desires to, to desire and, and sleep with women who are not his wife. To find good people who you trust and share that struggle that you are seeking to honour God in this area. I would encourage you in this to put your faith in Jesus. Let him be your refuge that you run to. Uh, when you become a Christian, it's not like everything goes away. All the fight and the temptation goes away. That the desires go away. Yes, you have a great desire for Christ. And yet, no doubt, there will be times that you will find overwhelming the war and the fight of these desires. Charles Spurgeon spoke about the birds will fly over your head. They will. Just don't let them nest in your hair. And I think I want to encourage you that that it, it, for some of you, it might be a lifelong battle and the birds will keep flying over your head. And I would encourage you in that, just don't let them nest in your hair. Put your trust in Christ, run to Him, put your faith in Him that you would desire Him more than anything else, that you would see His surpassing worth is greater than anything else in this world. Run to Him. As a church, I want to have a word to you, Sovereign Grace Church, in general as well. As a church where there will be, and there are people in and amongst this church who have that struggle, that wrestle of same-sex attraction, I want to encourage us as a church to be loving and supportive of people in that struggle. Are you someone who is loving and supportive? Or do you speak in a way that is unhelpful and derogatory? Does your language make it impossible for anyone to ever come to you and to share that they struggle with that? Does the way that you speak about gay and lesbian people make it almost impossible for anyone to feel they could ever open up to you that that is a struggle for them? Be loving and supportive. Watch your language. Be loving and supportive. I think I also want to encourage you to be loving those outside of the church. Jesus spoke about in Matthew 7, uh, was it Matthew? Yeah, Matthew 7, about being aware that we are so quick to find those who have specks in their eyes when we have this massive log in our own eyes. As Christians, as we come to Romans 1, we see that all of us, the problem of humanity is that we have all said no to God. We've all committed cosmic treason. <laughs> Evaluate and weigh up your own heart in light of the cross that Christ had to die for you. And love those outside of the church, whether heterosexual or homosexual, in light and in view of what Christ had to do for you. <laughs> aware of your own faults or your own failings, your own sin. And in light of that, see that what they need is not if they are homosexual to become heterosexual. 
whilst that is true and that they ought to submit to God's good intentions for sex, what they need, what they need from you in love is the gospel. What they need is not for you to argue politics and culture with them. What they need for you is to present the case and the story of the Saviour, the one who died for them. Sovereign Grace Church, may we be a church that takes the gospel out, that we love people with the gospel, not trying to win arguments, but trying to present the the great Saviour. That's that's the news that changed my heart, my idolatrous, cosmic treason heart when I was beginning high school. That's the news that changed me. That's the news that still changes lives today. So take that truth and share that with your friends. What a saviour we have for all of us. What a saviour we have, hey? Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are a good God. You are a loving and gracious God that whilst we in our sin have exchanged you, have pushed you off the throne and said, no, we don't want you, but we want your stuff. You, the good God, the good creator, entered creation as a man. That the judgment for our rebellion, he would take upon himself. That in Jesus Christ, we can be freely forgiven and completely aware that we'd be saved. Lord, would we be a church then that grows more and more in our desire for you, that grows more and more in understanding the surpassing worth of you, you, Lord, not your stuff, you, that we would submit everything in this world to your agenda, to your design, to your purpose. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, again, I want to just say, if, if you have further questions that want, you want to follow up, then uh, feel free to come and, and grab me or grab Brendo or any of the other life group leaders and, and we'll do our best to answer as best we can in light of Scripture. But otherwise, I'd encourage you to grab a coffee, head outside and grab a soft drink, grab a, a sausage... Uh, let the kids have a jump and then maybe there'll be time for the adults to have a jump on the jumping castle, we'll see. But thanks for coming, church.